I want to look at this word drove. It says that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. I just wanted to look at the different translations. The NIV says sent. In this case, that is not as strong as what the original word was. That was a weaker translation. New American Standard impelled Jesus. New Living Translation compelled the message, pushed. And then the CSB also uses the word drove. The Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And then I wanted to look at another verse here in Mark chapter 1 that uses this original word drove. It says, and Jesus and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and he cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And so the word cast out is that word drove. And so Oftentimes, this is the same Greek word that is used when it says that Jesus cast out demons. He drove out the demons forcefully, vacated them. And here, this is how, this is what is happening. The Holy Spirit is present in its complete fullness. And Jesus drove Jesus further out into the wilderness because Jesus was already in the wilderness at the Jordan when he was baptized by, by John, but then he was taken from there and drove evidently further out to the wilderness, away from the crowds and by himself. Mark emphasizes the barrenness that Jesus was surrounded by. We're used to thinking about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As we read the Gospels and study them, we see that the Holy Spirit had a very rich role in Jesus' life as well. So Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. That number 40 is not lost in anybody who knows their Bible even a little bit. Whether it's 40 days or 40 years, this is something. So the Holy Spirit knew as, as providentially um, as Jesus was put in the wilderness for 40 days that this would draw our minds back to other people who had this 40 unit uh, attached to them as well, Elijah and Moses and others. Times of testing. Times of preparation. Also, as we consider the wilderness, the wilderness, I haven't met somebody yet who is all excited about the wilderness or the desert. I suppose there's the occasional rancher, farmer that that loves just being out in barren places but I haven't met them yet. I'm sure they exist, but most of us do not consider the wilderness a pleasant place. Also, in Jewish thought, the wilderness was a place for the demons. It was a place for the devil. So whenever the wilderness is brought up, it's totally devoid of uh, people living there and it's an awful place where you are likely to encounter demon activity. Also, only Mark makes the addition that 
Jesus was out with the wild animals. The other two Gospels that cover Jesus' temptation, Matthew and Luke, don't mention this detail. The implication to me, and we really don't know, but it seems to me since it's connected directly with the wilderness, is that no one will go out there because only the wild animals are out there, and there was a danger involved with that. Now, speaking about my personal experiences, up until about 10 years ago, I did not really have much experience with the wilderness or the desert. I had never really been in a location that was considered outright desert. Well, that all changed, and my wife and I have joked about a particular city called California City. Um, when you think of, when you hear the, the, the town name California City, you think of, wow, that's an impressive place. Well, if you've been to California City, California City is this truly God-forsaken place, population about 10,000 people out in the middle of the desert. If you have been in California, you have Bakersfield, which is um, in the Central Valley there, in the southern part of the Central Valley. And that's a pretty urban area. But you can go east on Highway 58 out of Bakersfield, and then you begin to climb up into the mountains. And as you're climbing up in the mountains, it's very green. You can see some orchards going over the, the hills and stretching out. And it's some beautiful scenery. Then as you get towards the mountain pass, Tehachapi Pass, within maybe a mile or two, things change drastically. You move from green to brown, maybe even gray-brown. You begin to see hundreds of windmills as you begin to then descend out of that mountain pass and down into the valley. And then by the time you hit the valley floor, you begin to leave these hundreds of windmills behind and you are surrounded by desert. And the further you drive in, the more you can just see the mountains off in the distance, and between you and the mountains is just that golden brown with occasional you know, slightly green cactus or brown-gray rolling tundra. Um, and that's about it. And then you see this sign for, for California City. Like, home. Oh. And then you get off the exit and you drive, and then you drive through nothingness, more nothingness. And then you see another sign that says, turn here for California City. And you turn in and you go down this road, and it it feels like an old western town that's almost abandoned. Hardly anything going on. You'd never know that they actually had a population of 10,000 people. And... We, did not, we were there several times as we were preparing to plant a church, and you couldn't hardly go to a store or go to McDonald's. They didn't really have anything but McDonald's and maybe some weird pizza places um, to eat, and um, you'd be approached by some intimidating figures who you wouldn't want to meet on a dark night trying to convince you to give them your money. It was just a rough western desert town. I had another experience preparing for deputation. That is, when you go on Interstate 80 and you get out into Nebraska, um, you begin to have maybe 30, 45 minutes between good places to stop, whether to eat or get gas 
or to find a hotel. Well, you get into western Nebraska, and it might be over an hour. And if you don't plan your stop and you want to get a hotel for the night in western Nebraska, there's not very many hotels. And so if you stop, those hotels are going to be completely booked, and the truckers are going to be on the ramps with no other place to go because there's nothing there. It's barren. And then you get over into Wyoming. And, oh boy, I get to stop at Cheyenne. Oh yeah, there's a Pizza Hut there. There's a McDonald's there. There's not much else. And when you have to stop to get gas, you about have your, your door blown off by the wind as the crosswinds are huge there. Shy, I hate Cheyenne, okay? But if you want to see if you're going to get beyond Cheyenne, okay, let's get to Laramie. Oh boy, Laramie. One time when we were driving and I had left here in Indiana at 5 a.m. and I wanted to get as far as I could into Wyoming. And usually if I get to western Wyoming, that makes the second day as I'm going to California maybe, you know, a 12-hour day. And so... Um, we, I get past Cheyenne, oh boy, okay, I'm, I'm going to get to western Wyoming, and the winds were so bad, and they were so bad that as we get to Laramie, the railroad gates across the interstate were, were down, the lights were flashing, we had to exit right there, and thankfully the Super 8 hotel had a room for us. But I had been driving since very early that morning, and I was very cranky, and the wind was like 60 miles an hour. And we could have, couldn't hardly get the van doors open because the wind was so bad. My wife just put me to bed and didn't want me around anybody because I was cranky. That never happens. I only get cranky maybe once a year, okay? <laughs> My daughter is old enough to now speak up. <laughs> the wilderness, barrenness, not pleasant places to be. And here we have Jesus in the wilderness alone with Satan himself. We do not read many examples, and this may be the only example. It's been a little while since I've studied this, but this may be the only example we read of Satan face to face with a human being. Now, granted, this is the God-man, Jesus Christ, but Satan in form facing somebody on this earth. This is a huge, momentous event. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan cannot be everywhere at once like God can. And so sometimes we give Satan way too much credit. In fact, I won't even say sometimes. Most of the time I think we give the devil way too much credit. Highly unlikely that the devil comes here to Bremen. I'm sure it has happened at some point. Now, as we talk about the kingdom of darkness, I've referred to this verse many times. This is helpful for us. The kingdom of darkness has a structure, a tier, as any organization, as any kingdom does, down from the top all the way down to the bottom to the peons. 
And so as we talk about the kingdom of darkness, we talk about struggling with temptation. We wrestle not. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual dimension around us. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, if you haven't, you should. But make sure that you're encouraged in the Lord when you read it because it's unnerving. In the screw tape letters, there is a demon that's higher up in authority training a up-and-coming demon. And C.S. Lewis captures spiritual warfare in a vivid way as he describes how this uh, demon, this uh, higher-ranking demon, is training this up-and-coming demon to tempt people, especially Christians. As we talk about Jesus being tempted by Satan, Mark is unique among the other two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, that includes the temptation of Jesus. Mark doesn't talk about how Satan tempted Jesus, and he doesn't record that Jesus was victorious. He just said that Jesus was tempted by Satan. Many folks who want to get into more of the nitty-gritty of the style of the Gospel of Mark will point out that Mark does not include Jesus' victory over Satan into the cross and his death and his burial and his resurrection. So Jesus is tempted, is, is pictured by Mark as all throughout his time here on earth fighting against the kingdom of darkness. So as Satan tried to tempt Jesus, how much more will Satan's demons try to tempt us? In other words, Surely, Satan had to realize the futility of his mission, but because he is evil itself, he had to try. But if Satan was going to try on Jesus, which was an impossible target, how much more will his demons target those who are not so impossible? I want you to feel the reality that demons will go after you. There are times when I am minding my own business, seeking to honor the Lord, And bam, out of nowhere, totally unrelated 
temptation arrives. So is there a Bremen demon or two? That they, so they're not omnipresent. Are they making their circuit? Going through the spiritual realm, looking, and they're able to see us. And they just, hmm, I'm going to try this one. Throws it. It's my soul. Lights it up. It's helpful for us to consider this. There are, there are times when it feels completely random. As if a demon had flown by in the spiritual realm and taken his customized fiery dart, this bomb that once it hits our soul, it lights up the fabric and the fire just spreads through the fabric of our soul and lights it up with temptation. The fact that Jesus was subjected to temptation at all is a combination, it's a juxtaposition that is just mind-boggling. Creator God, righteousness itself, beauty of holiness, 100% God, 100% man, hypostatic union there in Jesus, facing up the devil. What a juxtaposition, what a combination coming together in this world. Remember as a child being fascinated, especially as I grew into my teen years and young adult years, being fascinated with how my grandpa did things, my grandpa Anderson. He had been careful with his money, he had raised four children. And I was able to spend a fair amount of time with him over the years. And so I was interested with what he experienced and what his struggles were. In what order he did things in his life. I remember thinking, wow, because I knew that he had planned for retirement. I remember thinking, wow, when I learned that he didn't start planning for retirement until after the kids were out of the house. Now I know people start at different times to plan for retirement. My point is, is that he's like, it just wasn't practical before then with, with the money that I was making. And it helped me just consider, okay, you know, he struggled with when to start planning for retirement, yet he was careful and he was able to take care of things. And my point here is we consider what Jesus did and what he went through. It's noteworthy. So let's consider as we struggle through this life, considering what Jesus faced, what he went through. And also to consider Jesus' victory. So Jesus and temptation, and then me and temptation. And I wanted to do just a big overarching question here. What is temptation? I don't want to go deep here. I just want to make sure that we're considering exactly what temptation is because there are different senses of the word in English. 
We're talking about temptation in the sense that we are incited by someone or something to do something that is morally wrong. That's what we're talking about here. And to understand what is morally wrong, we have to look at the scriptures themselves, but also God has imprinted upon us a conscience. Our conscience can be trained wrongly. However, a combination of God's word and the scriptures themselves, as well as for Christians, the Holy Spirit made clear to us what is morally wrong. And you and I have the ability to desire, to pursue, to be prodded towards something that is morally wrong. Next, can everybody have victory over this type of temptation? Everybody, I'm not just talking about Christians, I'm talking about everybody. Can everybody have victory over temptation? In one sense, because of the gift of God's common grace, I would say yes. God in his common grace, he has given everybody the ability to achieve good, to do good things, and to solve problems. So in a sense, Christians and non-Christians can find victory over temptation. But ultimately, in the spiritual war that we are in, and every person is born into the wrong kingdom, and until they are come into God's kingdom through Christ, they will ultimately lose when it comes to this matter of temptation because they have the wrong nature. So for Christians, we can celebrate the type of victory that only we can experience. Christians are tied to the victory of Jesus Christ. They are bonded with him. All Jesus' victory is our victory. Romans chapters 6 through 8 detail how this practically can play out in our lives. So as you face temptation, do not have the helpless mentality that belongs to the old nature. Instead, know and be confident that through Jesus, you can be victorious. You can conquer. 1 Corinthians covers overconfidence and a lack of confidence when it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 13, very popular verses. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, you will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And I think pretty sure that we're we stop right there and we don't read the next verse because there's a practical step when it comes to this way out and overcoming temptation. And these verses 
are in the context of handling demonically inspired spiritual idolatry. And so that's why the next verse practically says, therefore, my dear friends, therefore, because we can be uh, conquer temptation, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from the sin. Flee from the temptation. Yes, we have victory in Jesus Christ, but don't face it with a helpless mindset. Face it and put your running shoes on and get away from it. Jesus and temptation, me and temptation, and then me, temptation, and Jesus. That brings us to the fact, what about my constant struggle? And what about my continual failure in my Christian life? You're not unique. I want to look at the fact that Jesus is our champion. In our culture, we understand, even if you don't care about it, we understand sports. There are some of us who are into sports, and we live to pin our hopes on the team that we identify with. We love it when our team faces every challenge in the game and wins. As we look at Jesus, one of the ways we can watch Jesus is we can watch him in the Gospels, the good news, the story of Jesus, watch him face every challenge, and he overcomes, and he wins. He even does it with the big ones. Jesus is our champion, and we're on his team. He is our team. As we watch the game unfold, as we read the Gospels, we watch him win. You need some good news today? You need to feel like you're winning? Well, watch Jesus win in the Gospels. Jesus is our champion, but Jesus also knows our pain. Jesus, and this is a mystery, folks. Jesus, being tempted to sin, although incapable of sinning, not possible for Jesus to sin, and yet feeling the weight of temptation. How does that add up? We don't know, but it's all true. So Jesus knows our pain, and Hebrews has some beautiful verses about this. Hebrews 2.18, For because he, Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. That high priest is Jesus, by the way. 
but one who in every respect, did you catch that? Every respect has been tempted. Wow. Jesus has been tempted in every respect, just like we have, yet without sin. Let us then, what's our response to that? Let us then with confidence, openness, boldness, unashamedness, like a little child goes into the presence of their parents, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's let that soak in, folks. We go to Jesus as our daddy, say, help. He knows exactly what we're feeling. No shame. We go to Jesus in all of his perfection that we have in our account, and we can go to him as his beloved child and just messily throw it all out there. The details of the struggle, of the temptation, of the sin that we have committed or that we want to commit or both. Lay it out there. And it says the throne of grace. So we think of a throne as an imposing thing that we're afraid of because we're in the presence of the king. But here, drawn together, juxtaposed again, is this idea of a king in his awesomeness, yet at the same time, a friend in his tenderness. I think if we let that soak in, it would transform our prayer life. Some of you need to go to Jesus right now and say, my heart is cold and I know it and I don't like it. Help me. I'm struggling with this addiction. Help me. I'm angry and bitter. Help me. I'm overwhelmed. Help me. Knowing this about Jesus, keeping this in mind will transform our prayer life. Jesus is our champion. Jesus knows how we feel. And then Jesus is our righteousness. This is also we have to keep in mind, my friends, because we... We mess up, and that can overwhelm us, and that can discourage us. But if we put our eyes on Jesus, that we have his perfection on our account, the fears of inadequacy flee away because we know we have perfection. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's celebration, my friends. It goes on. He, that's Jesus, as the propitiation, the satisfaction of, of our sin upon the altar. God's wrath poured upon Jesus Accomplish a propitiation, a satisfying, a covering for our sins. 
and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There are a lot of other New Testament passages that talk about the position of righteousness and holiness that we have in Jesus. Many of the New Testament letters deal with this in some way or another. So if you want to soak in this reality as Jesus is our righteousness, just turn to any New Testament letter and start reading it. And somewhere in there you're going to read about the position we have in Christ. Jesus, our righteousness, our positional holiness. Encourage yourself in that as then you pursue your practical holiness in his power. Three points of application this morning. Are you taking your sinfulness seriously? Some people are overconfident and proud and sensitive. Is that you? Some people need to have a healthy reminder of their wretchedness. Other people need to be reminded of the power they have through Jesus. Are you handling your temptation through Jesus? That is the whole premise of the new life we have in Christ as explained in the letters of the New Testament. Through Jesus, we have the ability to handle Last of all, are you celebrating the victory you have in Jesus? Some people are overconfident. Other people are totally overcome. And they need to remember the victory they have in Jesus. If you were overcome, why didn't you spend your Sunday afternoon just reading through the New Testament letters? It's better than getting on Facebook. It's better than watching a TV show. Read the New Testament letters. Strengthen your soul what you have in Jesus. Let's take a few minutes and respond to the Lord. This is Jesus' temptation in me. Super practical for us. I pray that you'll be strengthened and encouraged in what you have in Jesus. Be honest with yourself. Be specific. Don't just do your church religious thing. Be real with your relationship with Jesus.